If you don't know much about the Armenian Genocide, there's a reason for that. Suppression of this atrocity has been going on for more than a hundred years. People throw around the word allegedly to give themselves cover for accusations that may be problematic or legally actionable. At its most trivial, you'll see the word used in newspaper stories about celebrity scandals. Other times you'll see it wielded in a geopolitical arena. There, it is far more destructive. It all started with the Ottoman government arresting Armenian intellectuals and community leaders. The Turks deported and eventually murdered one and a half million Armenians through forced labor, starvation, and death marches. This was after being robbed and raped, so pretty much the blackout bingo of atrocities, allegedly. Anyway, the reason you may not know about this moment in history is that the Turkish government, along with many others, has denied what happened was a genocide, insisting that the deaths were not deliberate or systematically orchestrated, just a consequence of mass relocation or deportation. And look, it was the run-up to World War I, so you can't just have a bunch of Russian sympathizers in your midst, right? But while the attempt at Armenian extermination was unsuccessful, there's a different kind of erasure going on today, and that's the denial that these crimes against humanity existed in the first place. As the Armenian diaspora grows in communities around the world, the survivors and their descendants aren't even given the dignity of that recognition. It's one thing to try and end the existence of another culture. To deny having done so on the basis of a semantic argument is just insulting. It's not like it's ignored everywhere. 29 countries and 48 of these United States recognize the Armenian Genocide as a bona fide historical event. But Israel, the United Kingdom, and the United States as a country do not. Give it up for states' rights, I guess? It's against the backdrop of this event that The Promise takes place a 2016 film directed by Terry George. It depicts the atrocities with unflinching clarity and gives us three composite characters through which to experience it. In the configuration of a love triangle, Christian Bale is Chris, an AP reporter, Charlotte Lebon is Anna, a worldly governess who has lived in Paris, and Oscar Isaac is Mikhail, a country boy who has moved to Constantinople to study to become a doctor. And before we get too far from it, can we just talk about triangles for a moment? Wouldn't it seem as though in a love triangle, each point would be in love with the other? While Chris Myers and Mikhail Bogosian are both in love with Anna, you don't see Chris and Mikhail having smoochy feelings toward each other. Does that make this an isosceles love triangle? A scalene love triangle? I don't know how math works. Anyways... These three interact with the atrocity in different ways. If it weren't for the love that Chris has for Anna, his Armenian lady friend, his job, and his ethnicity would almost certainly keep him at a safer move. As for Anna, her idealism keeps her in the center of the conflict, as does her growing love for Mikhail, our main character. For him, the violence visits unendingly, his grief and anger growing with everything he witnesses. But in the end, can this doctor take a life after pledging to a life of saving them? Our revenge will be to survive on today's friendly fire as we watch a film they don't want you to see. The Promise. Y'all. 
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast funded by listener contributions because our dowry-based business model totally failed. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Anybody get a dowry recently? I, uh, I, uh, after watching this movie, I made some dowry-based uh, joke humors on a text thread with somebody. Oh, fun. I was like, oh, I don't know. And, and then she said, well, you know, that, was, <laughs> that was between uh, me and her father. Yeah. Mm. And then it got all complicated. Right. Because sure. the father was invited into the text thread? <laughs> no, we <laughs> we kept him out. He came That's in as a, a pretend father came in for a little while. You know, when the father joined the text thread, they, they're the green bubble. Yeah, that's Most right. Times. It gets pretty serious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it can be it can be very challenging to have a mixed generation text thread. Yeah, four hundred gold coins sounds like a lot. It is a lot. They didn't make a huge case that he was marrying into massive wealth, but also that was a pretty nice party. So you sort of got the feeling that it was that way, right? I mean, her father was pretty well groomed. Right, I mean, none of the, these were not uh, these were not peasant class. These mm-hmm. were mercantile class, mm. merchant class, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a small village. How rich can you be? I, uh, right. when I was in the military, I had a couple of years on a mercantile class submarine, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> going from port to port, selling Stolen our skin, our silks. <laughs> was that was that the Sea Monkey Navy? <laughs> yes, <laughs> sure was. This is such a surprising movie to discover existing. It had a $100 million production budget, and I had never heard of it. Financed by one person, though. No. And two super famous uh, leading men are at the top of the cast, not to mention Charlotte Lebon, who's pretty famous in her own right. Uh, tell us the story, Adam, of, um, of how this was financed by one person. So Kirk... Kirkorian. I thought you were going to say Kirk Cameron. I was like, he's at it again? (laughs) He snuck one into the list. (laughs) Damn you. Kirk Cameron hitting the five hole. That explains uh, that weird scene in the middle about uh, a banana being intelligent design. Maker of the banana, almighty God, has made it with a non-slip surface. There's a lot of praying in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Kirk Kerkorian is a former owner of Metro Goldwyn Mayer, oh. and he self-financed this film. K- he put Kerkorian up, being an Armenian name. Yeah, and yeah. he put up all the money for it. Wow. And the reason he did it was because he knew that if he were to produce and finance this through a studio system, that the Turkish government would find a way to shut it down, sure. as they shut down many of, of these productions. Sure. Wow. Unfortunately, he didn't live to see the film because oh, no. he, he died once the film went into production. Oh, that's wow. terrible. Al- uh. Although, I mean, that is a that is a major theme of the movie that that the Armenians and the Armenian story will survive and and by surviving it somehow you know it it, it thwarts the Turks ultimate goal of of eradicating Armenians. The god so much fucked up stuff happened in the rollout of this film. Like before the film even came out, there were 6,000 one-star reviews on IMDb really? for this film. Uh, like there was a campaign to suppress 
good reviews of this film. Well, and the film does not have very good reviews. I mean, it's got it's got really middling reviews. I th- but it's because of all the one-star reviews being counterbalanced by an equal amount of 10-star reviews. Well, John, you're talking about like professional film yeah, review. Professional yeah. film reviewers that did that reviewed it the way you would kind of expect where they said this movie's too long, it has this unnecessary romance at the center. Blah, blah, blah. I wish it had taken more time with the war stuff. You know, kind of the review that you would expect us to give it. Mm-hmm. Except <laughs> except I really didn't feel that way. I mean, it is a long movie. And there is, and it is kind of slow through parts. But I felt like the, the, rom, the romantic quadrangle was really, a, really key to the movie. It wasn't boring. And I felt like it elucidated the pain of of a holocaust better how i mean how do you yeah. communicate a genocide in emotional terms where an audience is going to is going to walk away with any feeling of it and you yeah. have to have that you have to have that love element yeah like i think some people mentioned that the love quadrangle uh trivialized the larger issues but i feel like you kind of need something to help that that awful story become more palatable. Yeah. If it's just all awful, you're going to reduce your your audience even more. The conflict between the Oscar Isaac and the Christian Bale character over loving the same woman also always takes a backseat when there is an intense presence of danger of any kind. Like they they set things aside when when the Turks are, are close. And right. I thought that was also really interesting, the idea, because I think a lot of the films we've watched when, when there has been a, a love triangle involved have, uh, you know, one, one or the other character has kind of, you know, kept that as his primary concern. Right. <laughs> and also right. has made moves to put the other person in danger. Right. And you never get a scene like that in this film. No. We see so many movies where atrocity is portrayed, but really all they can do is just kind of show a pile of smoking bodies and then the actors are registering their suffering. Right. But we kind of just the camera gets off of them as fast as we can. I mean, we see we see genocide portrayed, but god, how do you get inside it? How do you how do you uh have a personal connection to it. And in this movie, spoiler alert, spoiler alerts. Um, (laughs) 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 All of our female leads, everyone we've grown to love and, and, um, and watched other characters love, they all die and they die horribly. Yeah. And so you walk out of the film and you're just as wrung out as you could be. And it really did, I think, put me deeper in the story. It made me wonder if a film like Come and See had had a Christian Bale or Oscar Isaac in it. Like a witness. It was so interesting to see that level of grief portrayed by some of our best actors. Yeah. And, And how, you know, it puts hat on hat in terms of that kind of grief. It is so much more pronounced when it's coming from Christian Bale. The fact that um, we're watching this right up against Kevin C, 
is hard to ignore. <laughs> I was feeling very bummed out about our genocide bang bang when I was watching this movie, just because it is a really hard thing to experience. And, and one thing watching these two films really made me reflect on is that we talk a lot about the Holocaust and uh, almost to the exclusion of some of the other genocides that have taken place. And, and Terry George actually wrote Hotel Rwanda also. He's the writer-director of this film. So kind of an interesting th- like Specialty. motif in your career to, yeah. to be to be focused on on this phenomenon of war and depicting it. Yeah, and this being the in a lot of ways the, the progenitor of modern genocide, like the first real industrial scale administrated uh, and systematic attempt to eliminate an entire people. Um, and there's a lot of uh, scholarship that tries to connect the Nazi extermination project. <laughs> That's f- fucked up euphemism. The <laughs> Holocaust. Uh, there's a lot of Nazi <clears throat> Nazi extermination project. Where do I sign up? <laughs> That's where uh, really, Alan Parsons got the name of his uh, band. They were a fucked up early <laughs> punk band. Noah, uh, that th- there were Germans uh, who were who were in Turkey at the time and witnessed this and, and participated in it that then went back to Germany and, yeah. sh- and shared their, shared their secret spices. The, uh, the presence of the Germans is as like military advisors. And in, in this film is, it definitely feels the movie is hanging a lantern on their proximity to what happened in, in Armenia. One of my favorite scenes is the one where Christian Bale fucking goes after them at that party. It's very early on in the film. Yeah. He knows right away. Well, and yeah. that's a that's a an interesting thing about journalists of the time. They were partisan and they did write articles that in their search for the truth, they identified the liars. And we've we've we are we often now complain about the fact that Somewhere along the line in the philosophy of journalism, journalists started to take this idea that they were neutral and that they were just presenting, you know, that the journalists themselves were just pass-throughs that didn't really, uh, that weren't ideological. And he is, you know, he's like a, a major journalist at the time and takes a real definite stance in both in his writing and just in the way he's living. He reminded me of Warren Beatty and Reds. Does his being a drunk somehow diminish his his quality of character or his or his moral stance in those scenes? Because uh, you know, like as he's going off in scenes like this, he's dismissed as a guy who's had too much at the party and needs to needs to leave. Instead of being a guy who is so motivated by his sense of morality that he is moved to speak truth to power. I don't know. I feel like every journalist of that era was shit faced all the time. That was a, it was like a key, <laughs> okay. key component uh-huh. of doing that work. Yeah. So I don't think, I mean, I think people being, um, people being kind of grossed out by it. I mean, obviously he's in a Muslim country. Yeah. And so, so although there are a lot of cocktail parties in this movie, um, 
They're all of the speakeasy kind. Well, well the Armenians are Christians, so mm-hmm. they, you know, they drink as part of their culture. Now the Turks would wouldn't. And there is a there is a, a scene in the movie where um where I think Christian Bale sits down with a couple of Turkish guys and the, and if you look they're drinking milk mm. or you know, Gross. yogurt or something. They're well, doing a milk power hour. <laughs> I need to go and talk to his family. But but there there could be a little bit of just that. This movie was made in 2016, and Christian Bale being a drunk like that, uh, a, a modern production can only show people being like, "Ooh, gross." When in fact, I think everybody that could be was that drunk. It didn't diminish their moral authority. You know what? What made his moral authority even greater was the powerful facial hair he Ugh. had. He had Civil War hair. Yeah, he looked great. <laughs> I thought it was weird that his character wasn't based on a real person, but instead was a composite. And yet they gave him that side of the nose mole. It was very big. Yeah. What a strange costume makeup choice. <laughs> you know? Give him the mole. Except for our leading man, and at various times the two female leads no one looks very good in this film everybody's sweaty and gross and dirty uh, christian bale is is made to look pretty uh, you know you can you can you can imagine how everyone smells in this movie <laughs> right it's a it, if this was in smell vision it would be a, a less pleasant experience this is a, a pre-detergent <laughs> kind of scenario <laughs> But like, I think crucially, both of the female leads are obviously they're beautiful, but they're unconventional beauties. There's no, they did not stunt cast this movie with Scarlett Johansson. Right. Um, They made it, they made it a little bit more character driven or a lot more character driven. Yeah. Angela Serafian, she's a veteran of TV and movies and herself is ethnic Armenian. Uh, This is the first time she's ever played a role portraying such a person. Interesting. Which I think speaks to the difficulty in telling a story like this in, in TV or movies. I mean, I think every Armenian, for as far as I know, like the Armenian diaspora in America is entirely a result of this genocide. There, there wasn't some big Armenian... Historically, Armenian diasporas in general are a result of this genocide. There were, they didn't like emigrate on mass for other reasons right or or similar genocides because or similar like massacres because the armenians this wasn't the first time this happened to them in turkey that statement is sort of made by the ambassador when he says uh, many americans have fled persecution and just led leaves that comment in the air right yeah like there was a time when american moral authority in this area was fairly strong i have a friend who's armenian um Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It's great. Uh, Some of my so, best friends are Armenian. So I feel like I can use uh, anti-Armenian uh, slurs uh. because I do have <laughs> one friend. Uh, but his name is John Kazanjan, and he runs a theater here in Seattle called the New City Theater. And he, you know, I knew him for a long time before I learned the story, and I learned it from him. And he has in his home, you know, sepia-toned photographs of his Armenian ancestors and he also feels like very strong armenian identity and and a profound loss 
and a and a, <laughs> a real feeling that vengeance is due, even yeah. still. That is really at the end of the film. That is the tone. It's not just don't forget about us, but it's also fuck you. <laughs> You can't get rid of us. Well, every, there's a yeah. defiance to it. Every success yeah. we have is yeah is partly a fuck you. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like paraphrasing that like Jewish proverb, like the best revenge is is surviving or or living well or whatever. And uh, and I've I've definitely observed in my uh, in my life like a lot of strong parallels between Jewish identity and Armenian identity in terms of. Uh, like having like be coming from a people that have have an attempt has been made on their very existence or several attempts in both cases i guess we're still here are toasts like the one that Michael Bogosian gives at the wedding at the end of the film often given at Jewish weddings also? <laughs> like i don't I don't say Less that to likely. be super flip, but like in the in the never forget kind of way. Yeah, I mean, is that a thing? I I think the remembrance of the Holocaust is a is is built into the the Jewish year. You know, like it, yeah. at, at Passover, it's like it's a part of of the conversation. It's um, it is not a lot of uh, Jewish holiday related dinners I attend at my mother in law's house that the Holocaust doesn't come up. It hmm. it comes up. Wow. I think a key difference between the two experiences is that the Jews were already in a diaspora in Europe. And right. so, you know, they were, and it was a diaspora that was centuries old, but the Armenians are, are a people in Armenia who have been there since Byzantium. And they had a very clear nation that was you know, variously overrun and absorbed and conquered and then sort of flourishing up there in the mountains and in competition with Kurds and Russians. <clears throat> so, the, you know, these were villages that had been, that had been Armenian villages to the dawn of time. And they're, you know, they were the first nation in the, in history to adopt Christianity. They, they adopted Christianity in like, 300 AD. Wow. Um, so the Armenian church is like the oldest formal Christian church. Wow. So they have like a extremely strong identity and they had only, they had mostly stayed in Armenia. The, the, um, their presence in Constantinople was more, a more recent development at this time. You know, that an intellectual class had migrated to, to Constantinople and had become, you know, flourishing, um, arts and culture class, uh, which, you know, which I think was part of the, like the, the beginning of this genocide was a purge of intellectuals in Constantinople. Was the Armenian population closest to Constantinople? And the reason I no. ask is like when you walked into Turkey, were there was there evidence of their existence at all when in the Istanbul part of the country? No, they were from the opposite end. They okay. were uh, Armenia is at the very easternmost part of Turkey. Yeah, I thought a lot about this kind of like perverse duality that empires deal with, which is that there's kind of a 
like we're the best and we're going to take over everyone idea at the center of any imperial project and then you take over all this territory and you have all these other people living in you know your you know finger quotes country and then you have to like coexist with them <laughs> and that's like that that's exactly what feels like is at play here when the Turks are like, yeah, the, the Armenians are garbage and, and they're a cancer in our midst. It's like, well, don't take over their fucking country then. Well, you know, the, uh, the Ottoman empire was of all sort of modern imperial empires. The, the one that was famous for, uh, having a pretty generous incorporation of other cultures, right? Like the, the, the Spanish inquisition was the result and and the inquisition against the jews did not expect that to come up that's right but uh that was a, a catholic reconquering of spain and they went after the jews who had been living very very sort of comfortably side by side with the with the muslims because there was they weren't equal citizens but there was an accommodation as long as you paid your taxes right and you were an armenian's and were the same because the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, encompassed dozens of ethnicities and and religions and cultures, and they did. They had this administrative um, ranking of different religions and cultures. But if you paid your taxes, you were more or less left alone for most of Ottoman history. But I think the Armenians in this case, because they were bordering Russia and were in this this area of contention between the Turks and Russia who, who were, who were really adversarial because they, you know, they shared all this territory and they both wanted to be the masters of the black sea. That was where this, this idea that the Armenians were traitors, traitors in their midst because they were collaborating with the Russians supposedly, right? This was the Turkish narrative. I mean, all the argument that the Nazis made was that the Jews were also traitors but the Nazi argument was that the Jews wanted to rule the world by virtue of making the Germans weaker. Whereas I think the Armenians were, were seen as actually like this border population that was going to facilitate Russian advance. Hmm. So it, there was a strategy to the logic, but it was, I mean, to the to the racist, xenophobic, and and um, genocidal logic, but it 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 didn't come from nothing. You know, it wasn't just. Yeah. But it, but because the Armenians were Christians, uh, Orthodox Christians, and the Russians were Christians, there was that perception. There definitely seemed to be like a financial undercurrent to the Turkish cause here, also. Yeah, that whole life insurance thing. The, the life insurance <laughs> conversation crazy. embodies this in maybe the darkest way. That was a crazy moment. But, you know, you walk through the market and there are the Turkish uh, storefronts right next to the Armenian storefronts. And there's great jealousy from the Turks toward the Armenians that is not reflected back. There seems to be uh, like a an anger just at the very notion of sharing the space. Yeah. And I wonder if that combined with the idea of getting life insurance policies made a part of their a part of their genocidal plan financial as much as it was cultural. Sort of like a crystal knocked where all yeah. the good stuff gets ripped off. But crucially, like one of the ways that doesn't support that argument is like when we go to Uncle Miss Rob's palace, basically, like I'm gonna call it a palace. That place was kick ass. It was kick that ass. guy's falling out of control. He really was. 
Here's like 400 gold coins. I'll give you 600 to, <laughs> to pay those people back. It would have evoked the the thought of Kristallnacht had his awesome furniture been taken or the bag of gold coins been been taken from the drawer. Like his house was more or less left to stand. It was the businesses that were burned. This movie is not, strictly speaking, based on uh, any one person's lived experience. So I wondered how how much those scenes mirrored reality or not, because it seemed like a lot of the time when they were hiding out, you know, it was just about kind of not being around when a mob of angry Turks happened to be walking around in the streets with pitchforks and torches. Yeah. Like, like if you were outside of the house when the big fat guy with the beard was there, you were in trouble. But if, if he couldn't see you, you know, he wasn't after you necessarily. Cause they, I mean, like they stay in it, like in the village when, when Mikhail returns to his village, like he and his wife go hide up in the hills for a long time, but his family is all down there and they're fine. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe not fine, but like not, they're not like mortally in mortal danger the entire time they're there. They did the same thing the Nazis did, which was use all this language of like, we're just moving you to a new homeland and we're coming. And first they conscript all the young men and then they come back for the older guys. You know, they didn't get around to the, and the, and they were, they were masking the murders so that the word didn't get out. But there were prior to world war one, you know, there were Armenian members of the royal court and there were Armenian people threaded throughout Istanbul culture. And I couldn't tell in this movie how a mob could look at a person in the street and know that they were Armenian. I don't know enough about the yeah. the sort of racial makeup of people from the Caucasus and how they're different from Turks enough that. I don't think it was just that the Turks were all wearing fezes and the and anybody not in a fez was a problem because I think fezes were there'd be a huge run on fezes if that were the case. Well, right, but I think fezes were already on their way out at this point culturally. Yeah. But uh, fezes about to make a big comeback. Fezes played a big role at this point in time. Then fezes fezes uh, had a bad rep for a lot of the twentieth century. They were seen as. Um, imperialist hmm. in Muslim countries, like uh, where like wearing a fez was. Was it when the Shriners got involved? Well, no, the Shriners were wearing them all the way back in like 1880. Oh, geez. The Shriners, and there there was a whole fashion in the West. How can for, you tell the difference between a, a Shriner and a Turk? Well, a Shriner's in a little teeny car. Okay, <laughs> all right. A Turk is on a horse with a gun. Yeah, and a saber. A Turk is never going to have a telethon. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh you know the the fez and the and the silk brocade smoking jacket mm. was a real and I know Ben is salivating right now but this, this was is a, such a great outfit movie. <laughs> oh there's the so way. many outfits in this movie. Oh. I'm so envious and it's terrible to watch a genocide movie and be like that guy's suit. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it was a, a, 
most of the great outfits are before the, all the genocide starts popping Nothing off, so. is more friendly fire than that statement. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to watch a genocide movie and go, but the suit. <laughs> I mean, but he, but Christian Bale's like dirty white flannel three-piece suits. Yeah. Where they're all, I know, I know, right? You just wear one of those until. Oh, with the built-in belt that he leaves un, untied and hanging out the back. Where do you get those made? I, I swear to you, I look for them constantly. I knew that suit the second it came. I was like, I look for that suit everywhere. Why is that not made? Why doesn't why why isn't that just on sale at the gap? They're so easy. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you could only get one or two washes out of it. As long as they're retooling J. Crew. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. Who do you think this film is for? And the reason I ask that question is because I, like a lot of people, am not educated about the Armenian genocide. And I think this film assumes an amount of knowledge from its viewer that I personally did not have. I've asked a lot of questions in this conversation about like the motivation of the Turks and such. Do you feel like this film misses a little bit of an opportunity to really elucidate all of the factors and the reasons why this happened? Or is the idea of genocide so abhorrent that the genocide itself is sufficient enough as a reason to hate the Turks for what they did? Did you just say sufficient? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think as somebody who does know a little bit about it, I saw throughout the movie little um, keystones where they were showing a scene that was explaining how we got here, but you did need some, you did need to be at a starting point to get the references. I had no starting point, but the references were there. And I think it would be easy if you were an Armenian who was making this movie as a, as a Testament to feel like you didn't need to explain that there was an Ottoman, Russian Muslim Christian oppositional relationship. And that, I mean, I think it's possible you could watch this movie and never pick up on the fact that the Armenians and Turks were different religions because mm-hmm. it's not really 
put down your throat. Right. If you don't have super strong hat decoding technology. But also within Turkey at this point, there was there had been already a project to modernize and to systematize and make Turkey a, a European government that was not a Muslim government. And there was a lot of tension within Turkey between the, as there is now, between people who want it to be a, a, a Muslim nation and people who want it to be a modern technocratic nation. And I think you see that secular government over a largely Muslim population. Right. And I I think you see that tension even before in the early scenes where you see there are Turks that are, you know, that have put all their old superstitions behind them and are, and are ready to be, um, your modern European man. Right. And that's the weird thing about nationalism too, because you can be a technocratic nationalist and you can be a, like a cultural religious nationalist. And so the, it was the nationalism that brought the two sides of Turkey back together. Uh, and I think either side exploited the other and all that stuff is in it. It's in the movie. And I, I was looking for it not to be because that, I, that was a point I wanted to kind of criticize, but I, but it was there. It's just that, yeah, right. You're watching it as a layperson and kind of feeling like, what is that now? Yeah, I mean, this film felt to me like a great place to start and an area where I want to continue my education in other areas. But it makes me wonder, like, if if that is, if that's the primary utility of a film like this, is it just that it got made and it tells the story in such a way that uses Hollywood A-list actors and it has a great budget and it looks and sounds beautiful? Like, is that good enough? Well, it was a $100 million film that made $12 million at the box office and none of us had heard of. Yeah. If the point was to be seen, it failed. Unfortunately, right? Yeah. And that sucks. I I read some quote from like the studios, I guess it was Open Road Films, like marketing executive saying like, well, it started a big conversation and that like, and like that's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't exclusively a money-making venture, but like, I don't remember ever hearing about this movie. Like it didn't Me seem neither. like they, they got behind it in any way. And, it's, and the it's, conversation was more about suppression than it was about the genocide itself. Well, right. It was kind of like the Streisand effect where like if the, if the genocide denier community had not mounted an effort to tank its IMDB rating, maybe even fewer people would have have heard about it. The the crazy part of this story is that the Turks have never acknowledged anything that happened <clears throat> at no point along the way in all of the different permutations of, uh, of modern Turkey has there ever been not, not only an admission, but the Turks work assiduously to suppress the story, to deny it, to go on Wikipedia and change the language to, mitigate it to continue to describe it as like a peaceful relocation or a conflict between nations or, you know, like it's crazy. And partly it is that after world war one Ataturk and the young Turks took over and really made Turkey a modern nation, but also continued the Armenian genocide for a little while. So both sides, the, the sort of, 
di- the dying embers of the Ottoman Empire and the the earliest days of modern Turkey, like the genocide kind of overlapped. Well, that somewhat mirrors what happened in the in the camps after World War Two, right? Like when the like the camps were liberated, but there were like plenty of people that died in in the process. There were plenty of Jews that were denied any kind of like legal status anywhere because nobody wanted like still there was tons of anti-semitism in governments all over the world like people that were in the camps that were gay were just transferred to different prison facilities and eventually died in prison like stopping a genocide is one thing and also like the cover-up of the genocide is like kind of a component of it it's almost like a definitional aspect of it the difference being that that the Ottoman Empire was never invaded and conquered and these camps weren't liberated. Right. Right. What the Ottomans lost the war or were on the losing side, but they didn't have um they didn't have the same I mean it was in a way it's a it's similar to the Reconstruction era South where uh, in the American Civil War, where the South lost the war and um and the slaves were freed, but there was no real occupying administrating army that enforced the new, uh, that enforced equal rights. Right. And so the slaves were freed, but they immediately just became sharecroppers, just went to work on the same plantations. It's just now they were being quote unquote paid. This whole country is a graveyard. In the aftermath of World War One, the global process of mopping up all the fucked up etude didn't really extend to a ton of well and 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 interestingly the russians proposed a proposed a treaty whereby they would administer the armenian question in eastern turkey the russians proposed this as part of the treaties of at the end of world war 1 and britain was terrified of extending Russian influence over the region and so fought the inclusion of this administrative deal in the in the final treaties. So they were more worried about Russian the Russian sphere of influence than they were whatever mopping up the Armenian situation. It was Smirnov who said that uh, in Soviet Russia the Armenians resettle you. It's very hard to do comedy in Soviet Union. <laughs> No, you're gonna. You're, you have to go out to the woodshed for a while. All right, I'm gonna take off. I'm gonna take off my cans now. I'll, I'll see you at review time. <laughs> this movie is very rich and colorful. It's very romanticizing of the mm. pre-genocide version of the Ottoman Empire. Like it's a. It seems like a beautiful, peaceful place to live. I mean, Constantinople is breathtaking. The the Village is quaint and idyllic. Um, waterfront property. Well, yeah, but great. when he's riding that donkey out of his village on his way to Istanbul, some of those panoramic shots across yeah. these, it was just like, well. I want to go on vacation in Turkey. It wasn't run by an autocratic <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Careful what you say. Yeah, I, listening. I, I, I mean. We're going to get a bunch of one-star reviews of our show after this one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. there will be a uh, coordinated effort by fans of autocratic assholes to bury us on iTunes. 
it, it's very digital looking this movie like the cinematography is is spectacular but like very post red camera looking to me can you mm. explain that it's definitely shot on on digital and it is not shot in a way that is trying to make it look like a a kind of film stock or anything like that it's it how, is, how would that be done if you were filming it on digital but you wanted to make it look all smeary and rich well there's there's a lot of different techniques i mean is when it like you a shoot snapchat on, filter yeah yeah i mean definitely when you shoot on digital you you typically shoot on a with a color space that is like very muted looking uh, to to most people's eyes, which is why there's been like in a lot of online video lately uh, in like the last ten years, there's been kind of a trend to a more muted color palette. Color palette, and that's like kind of an aesthetic choice to just leave the the like baseline camera settings on when you when you publish your video. But this this film was definitely shot like that, but then taken into you know into a color color timing session and they and they enrich all of the all of the colors and so like every color is so saturated like oscar isaac's skin is beautiful and olive and rich and you know the the sunsets are every shade of the armenian flag (laughs) like the it's uh it it's it's gorgeous in its way but um but feels very modern. Feels it. It feels like a movie that came out in 2016. You know, I totally noticed it, particularly in the skin tones, as you describe. Everybody's skin is just like boing. <laughs> but I would never have known why uh, or been able to identify it. Everyone's as a thing. skin is erection giving. Yeah, they're all just like swing. Okay. No, but I mean, there's 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 this richness. Yeah. To the the olive the you know a lot of different olive skin tones. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like. They just look like wow. If that all was of those skin tones. Oh yeah. <laughs> if I, you know, if I could have a beverage that was that color, I would, mm. I would be quaffing it. Yeah. It's a very well-made movie. It's like very well. Like I don't think that we've seen a lot of movies with hundred million dollar budgets, but I feel like the budget is on the screen. You know, sure is. It's a uh, and and uh, script wise, I was, I knew. That, there, that this movie had to be ideological. You're not going to make a movie about the Armenian genocide and not have it have a viewpoint. You're not going to have both sides of this argument. <laughs> no, you really couldn't. And so I went into it kind of primed to feel like, okay, I, I've already read a review or two that says there's an unnecessary love story at the center of this. Yeah, I, I, I saw a lot of in a lot of reviews that like this came out like almost exactly the same time as this other movie, The Ottoman Lieutenant, which is set during the same time period and had Turkish financing. Oh. And, and everything I've read about it, is, it says that like in the Ottoman lieutenant, they're like, yeah, like some Armenians definitely got killed, but they kind of had it coming. Do we have to watch the Ottoman lieutenant next? I mean, it feels I like mean, we could. I'd kind of feel bad giving it money. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, it's a war movie, right? We've watched some. We're giving a lot of bad movies money. (laughs) (laughs) But if there was, you know, if there was a movie made by Pol Pot, I would think we would have to give it Mm -hmm. a viewing. And I think, I think like the, like journalists of old, we can't shy away from having an opinion about 
uh, a thing. I mean, wait a minute. That's the whole point of this show. <laughs> we have pretty strong opinions about him. I don't know. I, I it's just, it's a suggestion that we bookend. Yeah. Well, sorry. The, I kind of I stepped on what you were saying about the stance that this film takes. Oh right. Uh, I was prepared to to savage this movie because it had a few components that I just don't like, particularly unnecessary love story. Right. Uh, and I was immediately struck by its beauty, which made me even more suspicious. Like, okay, this is a high budget, beautiful movie with a lot of sweeping panoramas and, and a, and a, and a treacly score that is trying to emotionally manipulate me <laughs> from the start. You know, the violins come in really early. I could not, but the movie is so well made from a script standpoint. Um, yeah. It's just really, it was well thought out. The story really works throughout. It tells its tale. It's interesting, like it has its villains, but also those those people that are sort of in the middle, like his, his best friend, uh, Emre, the, the, the Muslim best friend that he, he makes in, in medical school, being sort of caught in the middle, uh, having having this friendship with with Mikhail, but also a father who is like a stridently anti-Armenian member of the, I guess the uh, the intelligence apparatus of oh, Turkey. He's a ruling class guy. He was yeah. never going to get that far in medical school, though. Let's be honest. Yeah, that guy was a party animal. <laughs> he clearly knows right from wrong and. Clearly, but uh, but is also not empowered to question his father, and I feel like the movie does a really good job of putting us in this time and place of very traditional roles in family structures and in and in social structures where you totally understand why he can't sass his dad back in that scene where he's been told like you you put me in a tough place because you used my name to save this rotten armenian cancer's life he's cautioned over and over again and he he does not get that message at all he resists and it and it ends up killing him he's a modern turk he's he's one of the heroes of the film well as the voice <clears throat> as the baby boomer voice of both sides on this podcast <laughs> uh, you know, you guys asked me to be on this show just to infuriate young millennials. Mm. But it's interesting in movies like this, and I, th- this is kind of an open question to you guys, but a movie where there are baddies, is uh, are the baddies not sympathetic, but can you, does the movie allow you to understand the baddies from their own perspective? Um, there are a lot of movies where baddies are just baddies. We We see... We see movies where we don't even see the faces of the enemy. They're just right. they're just mindless marching soldiers that we mow down with machine guns. And we see movies where the baddies are vicious and cruel and we don't see their humanity. We do see their their uh their pathology, but they're portrayed as insane or as like inhumanly cruel. Well, in, like in Come and See it was the mass mania of some kind. Right. Like just the, a drunken rape of Nanking or whatever. That's right. a really good question, though. Like, there, it doesn't feel to me like there is an end boss in this film. And the bad guy to me throughout was always just how awful the basest instincts of humanity 
can become in situations like this. Like human beings are awful was sort of the feeling that I got at the end of the film. And not this specific human being right. as the architect for it is. We see a lot of Turks in this movie and we get to know them. We see them as people and and they're they're portrayed as as ruthless and cruel. But well, a, some are, but they're I mean there's also like the the like deputy governor who comes to warn the right. the priest at the yeah. at the mission facility like hey you got to get these kids out because pretty soon I'm my hand will be forced and we're going to have to That guy's start. great. And I and yeah. I think I think to Adam's point it I it deepens the effect of the of the story of the genocide to not have the Turks consistently portrayed as just bloodthirsty, mindless uh, ragers, but we're given insight into the, the, the sort of root of their racism and the root of their efficiency. The fact that a guy can sit behind a desk and send people out to do things and he is complicit, but he didn't do it himself. You know, he's not like leading the charge. And then you've got a bunch of young guys on horseback that are actually doing the, there's a lot of rounding up, you know? Yeah. And we see more than one Turkish soldier just execute somebody. But a lot of the time it seems like, well, they're, they're holding us back. They're dragging us down. I have to, you know, there's only one Turkish soldier that is, and he's the guard in the prison work detail that you, that you look at and you go, this person's a sadist. Right. Everybody else is shown to be kind of in one form or another doing their job. And that's a very, uh, it's a compassionate thing for the film to try to portray. And it makes the point even heavier. Yeah. That's one of the scariest parts is, is like how dutiful the stuff was carried out and, and unemotional in certain circumstances. I thought a lot about the the preconditions for something like this, though. We don't ever see like a a campaign of vilifying the Armenians, you know. That, right, it's already that, there. That's already done. Yeah. Everybody that is Turkish is automatically suspicious of anyone yeah. that isn't. It there seems was like. no leaflet campaign involved. It right, was baked into saw. the culture. Like the antecedents are are just like in in the air already. it was in the newspapers at the time i mean the turks were being inflamed as part of this nationalistic goal to newspapers who reads those i know am i right they used to actually affect people wow that's the whole reason chris myers is there he's selling subscriptions <laughs> And then he just got caught up in this whole thing. Santa Fe. But I think in in uh, in America, the, this genocide was reported throughout. It wasn't like the Holocaust where everybody was able to kind of, in 1946, say, what? We didn't know. Right. Uh, the New York Times was publishing stories of the genocide and describing it accurately this wasn't going unremarked upon at the time. That was a pretty fun uh, little farmer hoggit uh, <laughs> showing up in the movie. Great casting throughout, I thought. Yeah, and, I liked and, uh, Jean Renault as the as the French uh, yeah. admiral. Great to see him. Oh. What a surprise! Yeah, he is French. 
famously. So French. Yeah, Jean Renault shows up toward the end. The film kind of comes to a point when the Armenians are pushed towards the coast and they have to both defend and retreat from that uh, Muzadakh, oh. that mountain. Yeah. And they uh, they defend it heroically, but it's the artillery that drives them into the sea and it's, it's the ship that Jean Renault captains that is able to send little boats out to rescue the Armenians from the coast. And uh, it's where our main characters, they both board the boat, and in the case of Anna, she ends up dying in transit. I think the filmmakers like giving us a final taste of what it's like to lose everybody. It's really a cautionary tale about how skirts aren't made for swimming, though, also. Skirts aren't made for swimming. That's a great Decemberist record. (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it is a very weird feeling to, to feel relief as men with bright red tassels on their blue berets pile over the sides of their That's the truth. boarding crafts. My fear in that scene was that no one knew how to swim at all. And so yeah. when, when, uh, when Mikhail jumps overboard, I'm like, oh no, he's going to die too. Well, you know, Turkey is a peninsula, yeah. a giant surrounded by water tongue of Asia. Yeah. The Tongue of Asia, also a great Decemberist record. Uh, great back catalog. <laughs> I, so so Turkey was declared as being in the war as an ally to Germany and therefore Not was at, at war with France. Right. And was th- this was a French uh a French cruiser in the in the Black Sea? Is that correct? Well, you know what what the what this movie never describes is the beginning of the Armenian genocide coincided almost exactly with with Gallipoli, the 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 big sort of Anzac battle over the Dardanelles that that was a like a major defeat for the allies. So uh where you know that was where like Churchill got his reputation bruised and the New Zealanders and Australians made this big heroic uh, invasion that got pushed back. Ataturk made his bones there. I mean, this was all like the major, major things were happening that we don't see in the movie right. that, that would have affected Turkish popular opinion at the time. Um, the French and the British navies were both active in this region because, and the, you know, and the Russians, obviously the Dardanelles, the Bosphorus there keeps the Black Sea, keeps the Russians out of the Mediterranean. It keeps the British out of um, the Black Sea. Oh, Luza dies in, is on the Mediterranean side. Yeah, right. So they couldn't, like the French Navy couldn't have gotten into the Black Sea because the Turks never lost control of the Straits. Right. Which was the whole point of Gallipoli, right? To invade there. And, you know, if you could, if you could get to Constantinople, you could lop off the, the Turks. So, no, they were, they were coming down in the sort of, ancient Illyrian Mediterranean. Mm. And they rescued 4,000. It was a real event. They rescued 4,000 Armenians, but you know, a million and a half Armenians died. It's very hard for me to imagine a similar thing happening for the Jews. Like, Oh, there's like 4,000 Jews on this shore. And I like, feel like there's lots of stories from world war two where refugee Jews were turned away or not rescued because nobody wanted them. And uh, I wondered, 
is that true? Like, were the French just like, eh, we'll stick it to the Turks by rescuing these people? You know, the, that continued, as you said earlier, uh, right? The whole, the whole exodus story after the war of the Jews just Jewish refugees just trying to make it to Israel and being thwarted at every turn. Eventually they commandeered some ships and just said, we're coming. You can sink our ships if you want. But you know, like there was a, the Jews had to fight every, every last step of their liberation. I think that the Armenians were much more sympathetic because uh, sympathetic to an international audience because there were a lot fewer of them and they weren't trying to take over Palestine, you know, yeah, Uh, we were just trying to save some remnant of them. So, so that they weren't completely eradicated. It was, it was easy to send a flotilla of ships and kind of make everybody feel like they were doing something Mm, right. But also they were Christians again. I, I I can't overstate how much right at this point in time, a Christian minority and maybe even now to, to, um, to certain audiences, a Christian minority, even though the Armenian Christian church doesn't share a lot of rights with Presbyterianism, um, that that's a that's a narrative of uh, evangelical Christianity that that Christianity itself is under siege, and that uh, these minority populations are, um, you know, that somehow we need to save them as part of uh, as part of the the self identity of of Christians as an oppressed people, whereas the Jews, I mean, nobody wants the Jews. I do. Well, I know. You got one, lucky dog. (laughs) (laughs) Who will help me? The end of the film is a reminder that this film started with a voiceover. And I found this moment a little bracing. Is there no other voiceover in the film? There was a voiceover in the very beginning. You get Mikhail's introduction to to his life. The, The voiceover at the end seems like it's picking up a voiceover thread that we didn't get though. Yeah. And that's why I bring it up. And I think it's related to my need for my hope to have had more backstory to what we were getting in the film. Like I found, uh, how efficient Michael's voiceover was in like moving us forward in time. I found that so satisfying that I was like, well, shit, if Michael was giving us voiceover sprinkles throughout, it would have really helped me understand the conflict better and faster instead of having to pick up on these visual cues that you were mentioning, John. Maybe, but it also would have felt more didactic as a film, I think. Yeah, that's true. Maybe they had a voiceover recorded for the whole thing and just decided it wasn't. Yeah. Like at the end of Come and See... We get that device of the black and white footage of Hitler in fast motion rewind. And here we get just a couple of of photos from the, you know, like from real life. In a way, it's not enough to really show how bad it actually was. It th- that stuff felt a little bit like feels like what we got in the film was worse than what we got in the archival stuff. And I think there weren't that many photos. I think the yeah. Turks really restricted the the documentation of what happened. Mm. Um and and again because there wasn't a there wasn't an invading army at the end. Nobody came in with cameras and took pictures of of the burial pits. Who would you say is the greatest advocate for knowledge in this area? Like William Saroyan is the author 
attributed to the statements that roll next to those pictures at the end. But like, who's who's the person that rides for the Armenian genocide awareness? Like, is there one person right now who carries that flag, who embodies the that in in that way? Because I mean, William Saroyan, I was surprised and happy to see his name, but I was like, wow, was there? He's great, and I love him. But is there no? Is there no one else? Is there no one current that that rides for this cause? I mean, every living Armenian. Obviously, I'm not. I'm not trying to diminish every living Armenian's interest in this. But but the cynic in me in, in is like, does this require a a celebrity advocate to keep the the flame alive? Well, I think the Kardashians have definitely made an effort to have they. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, they were at the premiere of this movie oh, okay. and made it, I mean, but the Kardashian audience isn't really the one you're trying to reach with the Armenian genocide story. Right. Right. But yet if you can reach them with this, that would be an amazing thing. Right. I, uh, after college, when I was a super broke filmmaker looking for any job I could find on Craigslist, uh, did a, a few a few gigs for an Armenian business guy in New York who at one point brought me out to like a big, like a big, like banquet dinner, uh, somewhere in Queens where they were honoring a congressperson who had, uh, you know, put forth a bill in the American Congress to, you know, essentially scold Turkey over the Armenian genocide. It's like one of those non-binding resolutions that's, you know, designed not to have any like diplomatic fallout but also be meaningful for a constituency and and it is like a kind of weird thing because we have like you know air bases in turkey that we were using at the time for our uh adventures in iraq and afghanistan and i imagine we still are um and and i think that there there's a lot of resentment in the American Armenian community that the that our government is kind of willing to look past the right. fact that the Turks have never acknowledged the Armenian genocide because there's like a there's a business case not to right. This is a major um, this is a major thing in the Obama administration. A big gaffe that I think most of the Obama people now recognize was a real mistake which was in the in the moment that Obama had the opportunity to acknowledge the genocide, he sidestepped it. And it was for the reasons you just described, Ben, that this relationship with Turkey, which is, you know, a nation that's always teetering between the Muslim world and Europe. Uh, he didn't want to offend them or that our American foreign policy couldn't afford to lose Turkish air bases or, or Turkish participation in the EU. And Obama sidestepped it. And I think... I think the Armenians rightfully felt slighted and it gave credence to the Turkish denialism and they look back and regret it. Yeah. It's regrettable. You know, Morgenthal's uh, ambassador Morgenthal's granddaughter was actually, um, she wrote the guns of August, one of the most famous world war one books and a book I highly recommend. Um, her name is Barbara Tuchman and guns of August is like, it only describes the opening days of world war one, 
when you start studying World War One, you end up needing to study the Franco-Prussian War, and eventually you end up needing to study Napoleon. But the Guns of August is a great jumping-off. Then your off fingers point. get all raisined in the tub, and, yeah. and you, have to, you have to get out after all those books. <laughs> oh, you get out and you go down and you get a you get the half pint of Ben and Jerry's that yeah. you still have there, and go back get in the tub again. Yeah, in a way that kind of metaphorically mimics the uh, the period in between World War One and World War Two. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but in, in terms of like who is really writing for the Armenians now, I, I think it's the Friendly Fire podcast. It's a hell of a combination. We're out here doing it. At least today. I think so. Yeah. We're doing our part. And we're going to lose our Turkish air bases over <laughs> this. At the end of the film, we feel the grief of the genocide, but also the micro grief that uh, Mikhail and Chris experience over the loss of Anna. We see the message by William Soroyan, and we see the the real images. But John, I wanted to ask you specifically about how you felt at the end of a film hearing a surprise Chris Cornell song during the credits. <laughs> a Chris Cornell song I had never heard before. There was a giant cartoon question mark uh, over the top of my head. For the first 10 that. seconds, were you like, is this... Really? Because well, that's what I was going through. Well, and I couldn't tell because of the way that we watch these movies on Amazon.com often. Uh-huh. Amazon.com that does not sponsor this program right. has never given us a penny. Actually, I think they have given us a penny, like one single penny as part of the <laughs> Amazon affiliates program that we participate in. Mm. But I, I couldn't tell whether that wasn't the music of the next show, right? Mm. It, that it hadn't clicked into some kind of, coming up on Game of Thrones, yeah. <laughs> Chris Cornell. And then I realized it was part of the movie. And against all odds, it didn't try to be something it wasn't. But there were a couple of things that felt like they were trying to stack the deck a little bit. And maybe a Chris Cornell credits theme was just one more try to like, I mean, I'm surprised Kim Kardashian didn't make a, a cameo yeah and the the reason she didn't is that they were too good for that one thing that i read was that uh, there was like a little speculation with this movie that there was there that it was released in the wrong part of the year like if it had been released in oscar bait season it might have actually gotten some uptake but they timed the release to coincide with the anniversary of the beginning of the genocide right and like like this is the kind of song that you definitely have, you know, the the musician come out and play at the Oscars, right? If it gets right, o- yes. nominated for best song, and and you're always like, what the fuck are these songs? Like I never heard this song. Oh, played over the credits of a movie I you know <laughs> kind of cared about or whatever. So it might have been a strategery. Yeah, they did, they did a couple of strategeries well, and they did one strategery, namely the release date, badly. His last uh, release, his, his last uh, really? single, yeah. and and uh, committed all proceeds from the song to support refugees and vulnerable children. Wow! As uh, as the film also committed all profits to nonprofit human rights organizations. Wow! And the organizations were like, "Thanks," <laughs> <laughs> because this film made no money, unfortunately. Well, I I try to have. Little uh, little moments of pedantry. There was only one on IMDb, and it's not it's not a great one, but I feel like I should put it in just for consistency's sake. Near the end, 
Michael, as the narrator, says that Yeva joined the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. Actually, he says Women's Army Corps, a common movie mistake. But after after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, but she is wearing a U.S. Marine Corps uniform. Wait a minute, that's a that's real no that's a real you know slip up. Yeah, so uh, you know it's good to know that the <laughs> the the uniform pedants have their one thousand batting average uh, still on IMDb, but. Uh, Ben, there's actually another uh, moment of pedantry I thought I would read to you. Uh, oh, this really? one, yeah, this one from uh, from Turkish truther. Uh, <laughs> he goes on to say, "None of this happened." <laughs> <laughs> oh, Turkish so, uh, truther! So yeah, Turkish truther pedants also having their say, unfortunately. Well, you know, they do have a point given all of the fake genocides uh, that have been reported by yeah. by you know, tear jerking minority people that just want to just want their screen time. Yeah. I mean, when you, th- when you look back and think of all the fake genocides that have been drummed up along with the fake moon, landing. all the great, all the great <laughs> fake genocides, John, that's going to be a, that shirt will never sell. Oh, it's a great shirt. <laughs> well, all the fake genocides and we'll put, you know, we'll put uh, pre-surgery Jennifer gray on there just for good measure. Wow dressed as Castro. We all knew from day one this mumbo-jumbo wouldn't fly. Every film in Friendly Fire gets its own custom rating system designed by me, Adam Pranica. Uh, There is a scene in The Promise that I thought contained such a rating system. And there's, you know, fairly early on, there's, there's a fear that something is going down. There's... Like, especially, like, with the parent class, the parents seem to be thinking that they're going to get past this. This isn't a big deal. Like, there are skirmishes like this all the time. We've gotten through them before. We'll get through them again. The parent class doesn't seem to understand the seriousness with which this fight is being brought to their doorsteps. And as Anna and Mikhail are walking the streets at night, uh, this violence is visited upon them in the form of a street fight. And as Mikhail and Anna fight off these street toughs Anna grabs from a food cart a head of cabbage and then grabs another head of cabbage and starts fighting people with cabbages she beats the shit out of that guy with cabbage I've never been hit in the head with a cabbage before but I could be certain that it would knock a person out (laughs) that guy that guy really like got, got hit and then hit again right in the face you could view it through the lens of of like sick comedy, but by the end of the film, <laughs> they you, do actually in the in the yeah following yeah scene. like they joke about it like we should be making soup instead of uh, throwing <laughs> potatoes and cabbages. At the end of the film, you get the message that you cannot destroy the Armenian people, no matter how, how hard you try. We will resist you. Fuck you. That's the message at the end. And to me, like. You get the scenes of the defense of the mountain at the end. You get you get guys with guns. You get all of those things. Like, you get military defense. But before any of that happens, you get street defense with a fucking cabbage. Like, you're going to have to work that hard to take an Armenian down. Because a, an Armenian will grab a cabbage off of a food cart and beat the shit out of you with it. And I thought that was very emblematic of this message by and from Armenians to the rest of the world. Like, you're going to have to cabbage fight us to take us off the map. And I thought that was a, a great moment, and I thought it was great that they gave it to Anna, of all people. Like, she saves Michael's life in that moment. 
and I thought that was great. So on a scale of one to five street fight cabbages, we will review this film. I think the story and the way that the story was told was excellent and ably done. I think the only gripe I have about it is has mostly to do with my own ignorance of the inciting incident of this conflict. And I think that might be more of a problem with me than with the film. No, but I don't think so. You I mean, don't? No, I think you are a, you're a, a, an informed film goer. And if this movie needed to appeal to the, the wide audience it was looking for, it needed it. I never like to refer to myself as anything above like lowest common denominator film goer, but I appreciate the compliment. Yeah. I, if this film is truly, it's about mission. Like if the film is truly about educating a wide population, I feel like I'm that population. Right. Give me everything. And so for that reason, I feel like I need to knock it half a cabbage as it is. I thought it was well-made and beautifully executed and great. Like, the acting performances were fucking awesome. Like, you can't do any better than Oscar Isaac and Christian Bale. And Charlotte Laban was amazing, too. All the way down. One of my favorite, uh, quote-unquote, that guy actors was... Uh, was how do, Ben, how do you pronounce her name? Shora Agdashlu? Uh, She's in a... It's as, that's as as good as I would do. I, she's I, I in love a ton of stuff, and and she's she's in the Expanse. That's something a lot of our our listeners might know her from. She's got a great voice. Her voice is like a coffee can full of gravel. Like it is awesome. And yeah. uh, and she plays Marta. She plays uh, Michael's mom, and uh, she's great in this movie too. I just wanted to mention her specifically. Anyway, uh, back to my review. Uh, four and a half. Street Fight Cabbages for me. Uh, ding wow. the half a cabbage just for the, like, boy, either through voiceover or by, by something else, just a little bit more establishing of the story. I think it just needed that for me. But uh, it should be seen, definitely. Big score. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm going to come in a little lower. I think, um, you know, I, I, I liked the movie. I just, I think, uh, I think I just didn't love it. I think... Um, I'm not going to put my thumb on the scale because it's a story that needs to be told, though it is. Um, I think as a as a film, um, for me, it's a like a good, not great movie, and it's a movie that has so many set pieces, like we like so many things we didn't even talk about. Like there's like the whole prison camp sequence, the like you know tossing the dynamite at the at the guards. There's like yeah, wow. The, like the attempted bribe of the of the Turks when when Mikhail's uncle is taken into custody, and how badly that goes for everyone involved. Um, there there's so many parts to this movie, um, but I cannot escape my memory of watching it and finding myself having to rewind two minutes, like. 15 times over the course of the of watching the movie because my attention kind of drifted a little bit. And I don't know if that's like the time of day or what I was dealing with when I watched the movie or not, but it didn't grab me. And I think uh, I would I would caution anybody sitting down to watch this that it's not necessarily the most gripping film I've ever seen. Like, I think Terry George is great, and I think the script is great. I just think that... Um, it could have been a little tighter and eh, some of the stuff maybe could have could have been cut. I'm not sure. 
Um, you aren't an anti-love uh, rhombus person, though, right? That's not the reason. No, I, I thought I, I think John's point on that is really well taken. That it, it really makes the effect of the genocide feel personal and and understandable. You know, the the he goes on to live this life of relative prominence and comfort in Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. and lives with these ghosts, and yeah. and that is a, that is a really well developed and made point but overall i'm gonna give it three cabbages i'll give it three and a half okay three and a half because i'm feeling nice all right (laughs) well i think both of your points are well taken and and um oh actually i'm just opening up a a check that came uh, in from turkey i'm actually lowering it back down to three oh good good i i agree with both of your reviews and and um you know there are a couple of there are a couple of things like for instance I don't think it's a I don't think the film has a good title. I don't think the promise tells us anything. If anything it Agreed. sounds sounds like a rom- romantic film combined with its movie poster yeah. it it looks like a Kira Knightley film. Yeah, everybody's sweaty and yeah. uh and and bodice ripping and it's just not the way it's not what this movie is and it's not the way it should have been advertised. And I agree with Ben that there's something in the pacing. There's so many vignettes that are interesting and, and, and exciting, right? The, where he's riding on the top of the train and then he hears wow, the train is yeah. full of people and climbs along the side and opens the, like, that is so scary. Did you think for a moment that he was going to open the box car and all the guys were going to fly off the bridge? Yeah. They were all going to spill out. Yeah. I thought that too. Um, and there were, I mean, I, I feel like, and this is something I'm always embarrassed to admit to you guys, but there are a lot of movies we watch where I kind of get about halfway through and start to flag and need to stop and go make some popcorn and, and get, get back into the movie. Towel off. Yeah, that's right. Get out of the tub. <laughs> take Unplug the computer, move it over to the other plug. You know, a lot of people don't wipe their feet after getting out of the tub and then you get those wet footprints through the house. That's it's a, no good. It's a point of pride for me. Yeah. I like to see I like to see where I've been. Oh. And when there's only one set of footprints, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> but um but that pacing issue, you know, was real. I did but it it wasn't that I felt like the story I never rolled my eyes at this movie. And that was a key thing. I never once went, ugh. There was just a lot to take in and it was it's two plus hours long and I understand why it is I I understand they wanted to put everything they could in it and I and I get your criticism Adam that it isn't it's not um, it didn't do a good enough job telling its story at the at the beginning to bring people in but what I liked about it was it created an atmosphere of a time and place I wanted to be there. You know, I wanted to be in Constantinople in 1914. I wanted to be in the mountains of Armenia. Um, I didn't want to leave those people in that place. And that is why I'm giving it four street fight cabbages. All right. Wow. Right down the middle. You know, you have an envelope from the Turkish government. Uh, on the desk there in front of you. I opened it and read it. It said I was a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I've heard suckers, they come a dime a dozen. 
<laughs> Did you have a guy? Yeah, my guy for sure was the uh, was the deputy governor of the territory that ro- that rolled up in a car with a chauffeur, got out and was just impeccable in every way, and clearly was a was a humanitarian who who held a high position in the government, but was not, but was a friend to Armenians and a friend to Christians in general and said, look, uh, you know, this is the last time I can come. He's obviously got a long relationship with this missionary, a compassionate guy and, you know, and, and really taking a risk. We've seen what happens when other members of the Ottoman aristocracy go against them. I mean, the word traitor is really thrown around in this movie and traitors get put against the wall yeah, uh, with not a lot of sentimentality. And we don't, we don't know what ends up happening to this guy. He sure trusts his chauffeur. Yeah. But he just had a, I don't know. There were, he's one of those characters in movies like this, where you ask yourself, would I, would that be me? Would I do that? Right. Stick my neck out, stick my position out. He's, he's living a comfortable life. Would he do it? Or would I do it? A brief cameo, but it was a meaningful character. That is a question I thought a lot about in this film uh, myself. And the person who embodied that resistance most to me was Dynamite Railroad Guy. The guy who was ordered at the barrel of a pistol to thank a guard for for helping him out of that problem of, of carrying a wounded compatriot. Yeah. Uh, later on is given a box of leaky dynamite and he knows just what to do with it. God, you talk about like embodying the fuck you, like the indomitable spirit of the Armenian people is like that guy with that box. Well, you yeah. know, he, he, he's a good example of where this movie could have been micro edited mm-hmm. because there's a scene we're establishing who he is. So we like him. So we, yeah. so we're sad when he dies. Yeah. He's sitting around the campfire. He's pretending that he's got a bug in his hand or something. Yeah. It goes on a little <laughs> long. Yeah. But then at the end, and, and all of that could have been sliced, right? Yeah. Not the whole thing, but you could have sliced it. And then at the end he says, I was a clown in, an, in another life. Mm-hmm. I made the children laugh. I did not like that part. And if you just cut off the I made the children laugh, yep. everyone knows what a clown does. Yeah. And I think I, I was kind of hoping they would cut to everybody else when he says, I was a clown, and they go, really? <laughs> I know. What Why? mean clown, Rambo? <laughs> I think if you It's went- like when you go to a children's party and you make them laugh, <laughs> and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could go through this movie and take out like five second snips like that yeah. and tighten the movie up by 20 minutes and make it. I was a clown. There. I made the children laugh. He it also Tom blew up Hollander. The He's great. Yeah. What about you, Ben? Who's your guy? It, it occurs to me that we did not spend a lot of time talking about the depicted combat in this movie. And one such scene is when the fleeing Armenians like put together the like handful of rifles and pistols that they still have and uh, make a stand against the Turkish army that's kind of come up into the Musada mountain to to get rid of them and uh, it's uh, and they comport themselves very well they they actually repel the initial Turkish attack and um it's kind of a surprisingly well executed strategy, you know, like they kind of re- represent their numbers as being 
smaller than they actually are, and the guys pop up out with their with their pistols and uh, shoot the Turkish soldiers as they're as they're charging. Uh, I thought it was really well done. I did not know that they had guns before that scene because right. they aren't really shown carrying any. Yeah. And so there's that scene where the uh, where the mayor of uh, of the town that they've met up with uh, is like standing up on the rock and he's like, "We've got to fight these Turks." And a bearded man down in the crowd goes, "Fight them with what?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I I loved that guy. Uh, <laughs> That's great. I, I located myself in the movie right then and there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but he was. I, I think he actually like participated in the in the attack, and he was like in a bunch of scenes. And I just I liked that guy. I liked his weird beard. And, Do you think uh, he's first in the gun line for being the guy to, that chimes in there? You know what? Just for saying something, you go get in the gun line. Yeah. <laughs> Take your neck beard and get in that gun line. <laughs> Good guy, Ben. Yeah. Uh, we have a big, long war movie spreadsheet, and uh, I guess World War II movies are, are in the mix again. And uh, we have 180 films to choose from. Okay, rolling the big dice. Here we go. <laughs> the foley has changed. This is the worst part of our show, consistently. <laughs> it's someone's favorite part. Some weirdo out there loves it. <laughs> 87. 87 is a war movie from 2008 uh, about the Iraq War, the second Iraq War, I guess you would call it, directed by Catherine Bigelow. Oh, it's the Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker, the movie that made Jeremy Renner famous. Did you guys see this in the theaters? I did see it in the theaters. This Adam, movie was kind I can't of a big remember hit. Remember if I did or not? It was a big hit. I don't think I did. This made Catherine Bigelow the, yeah. the household yeah. name. Did she win Best Director for this? Yes, beating out her ex. Her ex in James yeah, Cameron. Yeah, this film fucking crushed the Oscars that year. It did. And it made yeah. James Cameron have to go into his bathosphere and <laughs> cry cold, salty tears. Go, go down into the Mariana Trench and yeah. find plastic bags. Um, well, uh, it's been out for 11 years now, so let's see, if it, uh, let's see if it holds up. That'll be next week on Friendly Fire. All right. So uh, we'll leave it with Rob's from here. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison to the victor. Go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fires and Maximum Fun Podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to join the squad. You can get all of the bonus content from Maximum Fun by donating, as well as our monthly Pork Chop episode. When posting about the show on social media, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. You tell me. Say it, say it, say it, say it. Good for you.
Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.